Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of Redeployment by Phil Clay. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's DC recording studio. Joining me here is Hannah Rosen, a writer for the Slate and the Atlantic. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Dan. And joining us from snowy Boston is Slate culture critic Megan O'Rourke. Hey, Megan. Hey, Dan. As always with the Audiobook Club... If you are not a person who likes to be spoiled about books, if you don't want to know what's going to happen in a book before you think about it or read about it or listen about it, please put us on pause and go read Redeployment and come back because we will be spoiling the stuff that happens in the various stories in this collection. Redeployment is Phil Clay's National Book Award winning debut collection of stories, all of them about military men in Iraq and back home. Today, I want to talk about how Clay writes about the modern, all-professional army. I want to talk about how these stories fit in the tradition of war fiction. But I thought we might start today in talking about the actual structure of the book, the way the book conceives of being a collection. These stories are all basically about one topic, right? The big topic, the big story of these stories is the Iraq War and its aftermath. But it deals with this topic by giving us a wide array of kinds of stories and a lot of different kinds of voices about a lot of different jobs. We get grunts and we get commanders and we get a chaplain and we get an adjutant and we get a a foreign service officer and a guy in corpse disposal and a whole artillery team. There's no recurring characters really that I could see. And it's an attempt to sort of give us a whole picture of the war through a bunch of different prisms. How did this variety of voices affect your guys' reading? Did you guys feel like that was a satisfying way to make a collection. Hannah, why don't you start? I already disagree with your description of it. I mean, awesome. it's, the, it's the wide variety of voices. I mean, one thing that happened to me in reading this book is I had a really hard time distinguishing the voices. So what you just listed was a series of jobs. Okay, and a I, wide I, variety of jobs. A wide variety of jobs I can live with. But one problem I had is that Phil Clay's voice so obviously overlays, right? It feels like him telling everyone's stories. There isn't distinct way that these characters talk. So the college student talks very much like the body disposal guy, talks very much like the chaplain. And so every time I finished reading the book, as I go over it a couple of times to prepare, I just couldn't remember whose voice was who or whose distinct incident belonged to which distinct chapter. I really had to work hard to keep that straight in my head. And I think the organization is actually the flaw of the book. I think there are many great things about the book, but that was not one of its strengths. So if the book had been organized in the same way, but the voices were more distinct, do you think that it would have worked? Or do you think the very notion of writing a book about a war this way 
is intrinsically flawed. No, I don't think it's intrinsically flawed, but I just think he was trying to convey a certain attitude about the war, and he just placed that attitude in people with many different jobs. And so if that's your goal, why not have one person... I would have had Phil Clay. <laughs> I would have written this as a semi-autobiography from beginning to end and then just deepened that idea because it's a very difficult to write about ambivalence. And we'll talk about the theme in the book. But I would have just had one voice, I think, because I think every person was essentially saying the same thing and had the other people be characters that rotate around that one voice. Megan, what about you? I, to some degree, or to a larger degree, I think, agree with that. I also found it very hard to differentiate the characters. And one thing we should note is that almost all the stories are first-person narration, right? And they do feel slightly indistinct as people. They're more vessels through which an experience is happening. And I would make a caveat just that I think there are some stories where the characters do feel quite different from one another and they're deeply differentiated. But, you know, there is this sense reading the book of of a situation being the overwhelming thing we're dealing with it rather than characters, which is often the traditional kind of engine of a short story. So I couldn't tell to what degree that was intentional and to what degree it was just that Phil Clay's many skills, which we see here, maybe don't extend yet to that kind of deep characterization. And maybe part of it is also just war, right? That this is part of, as you're saying, Hannah, that the ambivalence here is going to kind of, and that sense of shell shock and slight. There's a lot of recurring themes of kind of wanting to witness death, wanting to deal with the fact that you've killed somebody or being the person who's dealing with somebody dealing with that, right? So there's a a real kind of eternal recurrence here of the theme. Yeah. And the generous reading of it is that, you know, as many of the modern movies about the Iraq war, this is about the professionalization of the war. It's different than an earlier era of war stories because you're talking about soldiers as distinct professionals with distinct jobs. And that's why you have all these intermittent chapters that are basically full of, you know, acronyms and jargon that you're not really supposed to penetrate through because that's the idea. You're dealing something with very real, but you're just having these kind of incomprehensible jargon. And so maybe he's trying to convey to us that the characters are not exactly distinct, that we've all just become, you know, each each by our profession. I have to say, I thought the jargon and all of that was really powerful. And that for me, it's not just about the professionalization, but it's also about the sort of implicit critique of the war as being a war that really got spoiled by bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that came through this book for me, and I wonder if it did for you, but that there is this kind of on-the-ground critique, which is just the way bureaucracy kind of mess things up. But in that way, it made me think of predecessors like Joseph Heller and Catch-22, right? Or, But I think some of it, too, maybe comes from – Phil Clay seems very aware of his position. And I know, Dan, you want to talk about the war fiction tradition. He seems very aware of his belatedness within that tradition to me and kind of very aware of the fact that he has to find a way to write that feels um, like his own, which I think both hurt and hampered him. So I also get the sense that he's a guy who feels at some times when he's writing these stories like it's a potential exercise in self-defeat, that it's very difficult Mm -hmm. to write these kinds of stories in the face of all the other war stories that have been written and in the face of this particular war. But Megan, what are the stories where you feel like he cracked that? 
I actually really like, I don't know how to pronounce it, Frago, Frago, which is the story of clearing a house, which to me was very interesting for a number of reasons. One was the profusion and accrual of this very technical language. So I'll just read a paragraph from the very beginning of the story. They're, they're going into the house and then the narrator says, I'm going to mispronounce all this. I'm sure there's a lot of acronyms in this sentence I'm about to read. So the narrator says, I gather my guys, make a sand table diagram. I've got to dip in while I brief and the dip spits evaporating as soon as it hits the ground. Human says the place is an IED factory filled with some bad motherfucking hajis, including one pretty high up on the bolo list. Salute report says there's a fire team-sized element armed with AKs, RPKs, RPGs, and maybe a Dragunov, right? So that kind of like accrual of language, which to me is also evocative of that bureaucratization, right? That to be part of this war is to kind of enter a world and a language whose kind of very grammar, syntax, and assumptions are totally different from anywhere else. And I thought that was really smart of him and really sophisticated and actually not something we've seen too much of. I mean, we've seen it before, but he really, he takes it to an extreme that I don't, I guess O'Brien does it too. But the thing too that I think he's negotiating sometimes well and sometimes not so well is this question of sentimentalism. And I don't want to just say sentimentality because that's the issue, right, is not becoming sentimental. So it feels like he really doesn't want to be sentimental about war and that he's really thinking about like, you know, Hemingway, Tim O'Brien, all these people and what they did well. So you asked what stories I thought. He, I like the last story, too. I mean, he's resistant to every war trope. It's like sentimentalism, yes. heroism. I mean, yes. that comes through in every story. It's like story after story after story. There's the story Bodies, which I liked about the guy who, what's the name of that job? Who collects He basically bodies? does corpse disposal. Corpse disposal, Mortuary right. affairs guy, yeah. Mort- yeah. But Megan, the <laughs> story that you affairs. were starting to reference is called Ten Clicks South, and it's yes. the final story in the book, and it's... It's a story about a battle that does not take place in sort of a traditional way. And if you right. think of the stories in this book as being divided sort of into three, into the the battle stories, the back in America stories, and the out of battle but in Iraq side job stories, this was the battle story that to me – best sort of typified this war and was the most sort of accomplished of the battle stories because it's definitely it's about an artillery team that sits in a forward operating base and is given targets loads the gun they're a team of six i think they load the gun they exercise their training they're like a well-oiled machine that in fact is serves to feed a real well-oiled machine which then fires huge shells six miles away and kills who knows who who knows who and so the the story of the story is one of the people on this team after their first successful shot trying to figure out if there's any way to determine who he actually killed and what happened to them and where they are now and as a very specific image of a sort of deeply impersonal war, like the sort of first great American impersonal war where American troops, while having plenty of face-to-face combat, are also killing huge numbers of people from operating bases in Iraq or warehouses in Colorado. This story really worked for me as a very unique picture of combat as it exists today. Now, conversely, the story that you love, Megan, was one of my least favorite stories in the book because – it read. Which one are we talking about? We're now? talking about Frago. Frago, Frago. Sorry. Frago, Frago, which, Frago yeah. which you first mentioned. It's, I think that's a reference to a uh, fragmentary grenade. So I think right. it's probably Frago. Frago. But yeah. what the hell do I know? Because, <laughs> but so 
this story felt like you're just a liberal pussy journalist. I'm just a liberal pussy journalist. Um, but <laughs> guys, guys, but one who has read really a lot of both literary and trashy war fiction in my life, right? And who's watched right. a lot of war movies in my life, and there was basically nothing about this story really that struck me as any different from a pretty good scene in Black Hawk Down. Or, okay, but that can I? Okay, go ahead. Yes, or or <laughs> like I just felt like nothing different than something I would have seen in Black Hawk Down, or nothing different than I would have read in like a great, some well written version of a Tom Clancy battle scene. I think what's interesting about that story is the way it's referencing film, and then the way it's reappropriating the scene that we've seen in film and making it a fictional scene, and the different things that come through as a result. And I also think that part of what it is is that he's taking in this story for me, he's taking some of those tropes to an extreme. Like it seems very self-conscious to me that it's placing itself within a tradition and then kind of pushing it. But what are those different things it's doing? Like I didn't see those different things. Mm. So what I think... Hannah wants to... (laughs) Sorry, I just want to interject. I know you want to defend your love of that chapter, but what I think he's doing differently is he's trying to convey to us the message. Like the emotional high point when he has... When he is... uh, He... See, we keep saying he because it's not Phil Clay. This is not a... It's not he. But when the Egyptian copped in this psychological Mm. operations chapter, like he's trying to get to authenticity, right? So Mm -hmm. he keeps trying to get to authenticity and then... The great emotional high point is him looking through a scope. So I think what he's trying to say is that when we encounter war stories, we want to believe that we are the observers and they are the actors, but that that it's no longer like that in war, that they're just playing the role of actors when they come home to America as civilians, but actually they're observers also, that there is no sort of touching and feeling real life for them. And he can't sort of get that message across to us. So that's why he keeps trying to push in our faces the idea that he's three steps removed, just like we're three three steps removed. There's that great line in the first story in Redeployment. It's actually on page three of the book. And it's about how much of a shock it is, to, even to Marines, when the war itself gets like up close and personal. Right. actually physically touching things. Mm-hmm. The section goes, it's not easy to kill people either. Out of boot camp, Marines act like they're going to play Rambo, but it's fucking serious. It's professional, usually. We found this one insurgent doing the death rattle, foaming and shaking, fucked up, you know? He's hit with a 7.62 in the chest and pelvic girdle. He'll be gone in a second. But the company XO walks up, pulls out his K-bar, and slits his throat. Says, it's good to kill a man with a knife. All the Marines look at each other like, what the fuck? Didn't expect that from the XO. That's some PFC bullshit. There's like this sense that on the rare occasion that you actually get up and dirty with the war, like that's like the work of... PFCs of grunts, really. Right. That's not like real soldiers, mm-hmm. real Marines work. Yeah. I mean, in redeployment, this theme comes up over and over again. Everyone, he's talking about being at Amherst. And psychological operations. Psychological but, yeah. operations. Mm-hmm. It's page 170. He's just come back uh, and he's now going to college and he has this encounter with this woman who he's kind of fascinated with. Uh, but then he says something which offends her and he ends up being, you know, moved through the university uh, uh, what do we call it? The micro offense bureaucracy. Yes. Here? <laughs> I'm not really sure to keep it in war terms. But so he says, everyone assumed I'd had some soul scarring encounter with the real, the harsh, the unvarnished, violent world as it actually is outside the bubble of America and academia, a sojourn to the heart of darkness that either destroys you or leaves you sadder and wiser. It's bullshit, of course. You know, I learned mainly that, yes, even tough men will piss themselves if things get scary enough. And no, it's not pleasant to be shot at. Thank you very much. Other than that, the only thing I felt I really had on these kids was the knowledge 
knowledge of just how nasty and awful humans are. I don't think he mm. quite nails what he's trying to say there, but mm-hmm. but you see what he's trying to say. It's like the alienation mm-hmm. comes in this new kind of war in a different way than it came in. Because I think all war stories are ambivalent. I mean, it's amazing to me. Every time there's a war movie or a war book, like what's happening with American Sniper, people have the same debate. Is it pro-war? Is it anti-war? You know, they're all both pretty much. And you know, what's interesting, Hannah, what you're reading there makes me think about, you know, one of the recurring themes, too, is that you know, the characters will say, oh, I I didn't really, they're very self-conscious about their audience, right? Once they've come home to America. So they're very aware of the fact that they're representing the soldier with PTSD. So in fact, at one point, one of the narrators says this girl like approaches him and tells him her life story of abuse and is like, I told you because I know you you understand PTSD. And he's right. like, well, actually, I don't. You know, <laughs> right. your, your life is much worse than mine was. But what's interesting is there's that kind of deflection. The narrators will keep insisting, oh, we don't really have this experience with it. And then something will happen. And this I thought was very well done. Something will happen that kind of ungrounds them or unseats them. And some pretty big, messy feelings come up. Right. And they have a moment where they tear up or they get freaked out. And so I thought he really captures the way the unconscious works in that sense and the kind of repression of emotion and the actual unknowability of what this event and war was, even for the people in it. Maybe that's what's difficult about it, although this isn't that different from Catch-22, is that the book is full of kind of a sullen resistance. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be this Mm -hmm. kind of person. He even says, you know, I tell the stories, girls want the stories sad, guys want the stories, you know, ironic and funny and tough. And so I can't be any of these tropes, but maybe what's hard about this book is that we don't know what it, it is. You know, we only right. we only feel the resistance constantly in every chapter, but not the kind of settling. He doesn't even he never lets it settle anywhere. That, that resistance, right. yeah, that resistance to me was very notable and very noticeable. And the various discussions and the stories in this book about how war stories get told made me think. I mean, I think naturally of Tim O'Brien's book, The Things They Carried, which I then went back into to read because it has one of the best stories in that book is literally called How to Tell a True War Story. And it is a book about how soldiers tell stories about war. And it's very beautiful and very fascinating. And it has a lot of, I think, good practical advice for Phil Clay and his future endeavors. (laughs) But it also, it reminded me that a real difference between that book and this book is the effort that Tim O'Brien, or at least the character that Tim O'Brien is playing in this book, makes to really open up his mind and heart as much as possible to those of us who are reading, to those of us who have not and never will be soldiers, in an attempt to try, sometimes beyond the bounds of propriety or well into the realm of self-embarrassment, to make us feel the things that he felt and make us try to understand the things that he knows. And those are things that I very rarely felt in these stories. And maybe it's just a different kind of, of writerly persona or a writerly goal, but it made in in a way that the things they carried like changed me as a reader. It's hard for me to imagine someone coming out of redeployment, anyone coming out of redeployment changed as a reader, really feeling like someone had opened themselves up to them. I would have to agree. I mean, I think this book shows a lot of talent. And one thing I liked about it, I will say, is I thought he did a good job of just conveying 
the flavor of a contempt that sounds too trite, but the reality of a contemporary war, all these little details that we don't get in the news stories, right, or in the films that we see because films have to move on so quickly. So there was a lot of that that was really powerful. But there was this kind of return to anytime there might be a sentimental moment or a kind of event that was very traumatic, the characters would say like, and all that bullshit, you know, or and that shit that happened actually over and over again. And it's very interesting to me, though, I wonder if you guys noticed this, that the very last story, the story I like, 10 Clicks South, I think it's called, ends with a really beautifully lyrical passage. And it's maybe the only lyrical passage in the whole book. And it's a passage, maybe I'll read it. Would that be okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's really the only passage in the book that's like this. The rest of the book, I think, resists lyricism. And I wonder if part of that's part of what you're noticing, Dan, is, you know, it's it's not making that play for our emotions. And it's kind of saying, I can't get to that place. The whole nature of the war is that you can't get to the place. But then in this last story where, as you described earlier, they're they're sort of fighting at a remove. And then at one point, the narrator sees a body being carried back on a stretcher. And he says, everyone standing on the road as the body went past had been so utterly silent, so still. There was no sound or movement except for the slow steps of the cordmen and the steady progress of the corpse. It had been an image of death from another world. But now I know where that corpse was headed, to the old gunny at PRP. That's the mortuary affairs place. And if there was a wedding ring, the gunny would have slowly worked it off the stiff dead fingers. He would have gathered all the personal effects and prepared the body for transport. Then it would have gone by air to TQ. And as it was unloaded off the bird, the Marines would have stood silent and still, just as we had in Fallujah. And they would have put it on a C-130 to Kuwait, and they would have stood silent and still in Kuwait. And they would have stood silent and still in Germany and silent and still at Dover Air Force Base. Everywhere it went, Marines and sailors and soldiers and airmen would have stood at attention as it traveled to the family of the fallen, where the silence, the stillness would end. I found that very powerful and kind of committed to the gravity of this in a way that the rest of the book seemed to be trying to convey gravity in a very different way through resistance, as you guys were saying. That's like the end of the dead. That's like a James It's beautiful. It's a lot like the end of the dead. In fact, I thought he was maybe invoking the rhythms pretty explicitly. Yeah, I think that's right. So here's the thing. That moves us when you read it because it sounds like what we expect from a war book. I think that the aggression of this book is to ask us to ask ourselves, what is it Mm -hmm. we expect from a war book? He is explicitly not giving us what we want. I mean, the reason, Dan, someone like you, who has not been to war and is not a vet, reads a lot of war books is because you're looking for something in those books. And I have many, many friends like this. We want war book to be the last place where we find sort of great tales of heroism, you know, true encounters with the real kind of, we want that to remain, you know, like unbroken, right? Like we want it to remain a realm of the real and he will not give that to us. So I guess I'm saying maybe the fault is in us as readers. Like we right. can relocate no. that the problem. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. I think that is the question the book is asking us to negotiate with. You know, I mean, if we can read tales of heroism about World War II because there were tales of heroism and the war was in some ways heroic. But can we say that the Iraq war was a, a heroic? I think there's a great moment in the book where one of the soldiers who's come back earlier says he's in New York. He's become a lawyer. And he says to a guy who's who was there with him, he says, well, how did we do in Iraq? Did we win? And the guy goes, we did okay. Right. right. And that I thought was like, wow, that's a really powerful encapsulation of kind of the heart of the book and the problems with telling stories about a war in which we did okay. 
I would like to push back against this notion, <laughs> Hannah, because I don't think that most serious readers who read about war are actually reading for tales of heroism or life in the extremes. We are actually, in general, looking for, I mean, this is why The Things They Carried, for example, is my favorite war book, which is not filled with tales of heroism and is not even really meant to be an exploration of the real. It's meant to give some kind of perspective and to grapple with some of the big questions that war forces people to grapple with, yes. But it doesn't do them usually. The great war books, I think, don't usually do them in ways that are tied up to like looking for true heroic stories. And so yeah. for me, it feels like the failure of this book for me doesn't have to do necessarily with a conscious resistance that the book is making to telling rubes like me about what war is like, but rather with a, an occasional failure of ability to actually, or maybe a failure of willingness to start to grapple with some of these questions. And I do think it's not, like uncool to hope for a great war book to grapple with these questions. He doesn't want to. Gra I mean, what he's but saying he is does. He sometimes does, because one of my favorite stories in this book is the only other story, I think, Megan, that does have long lyrical stretches. And that's mm -hmm. Prayer in the Furnace, which I is a story. story about a chaplain yeah. who is trying to deal with a totally stressed out, fucked up bunch of Marines who are clearly committing war crimes yeah. on his watch. And he doesn't know what to do about it. And the reason I like this story so much is because being a chaplain gave this guy tools and it gave Phil Clay tools to start to grapple with the bigger questions at play. Those tools were very explicitly tools of faith and religion. It was being yeah. able to just straight up quote Thomas Aquinas and right. to right. go into scripture. And those tools gave Phil Clay enough juice, I thought, in the story to give me what I wanted out of a story like this, to really start to get into the big questions. And so it's not that he's uninterested in it. It's that he can't always find it, I think. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a place in the canon or in a book like this for stories that do essentially what the combat stories in this book do, just give us a straight picture of combat written as clearly and crisply and literarily as possible, and even to alienate us in some way as that one story that's four pages long and is literally nothing but acronyms <laughs> is clearly meant to do. But this collection succeeds to me when it finds other ways into stories, ways that I think are more traditionally embedded in the sort of questioning, questing, searching war story that I love the most. I, I love that story too. And and I, you know, and part of what I love is is the way that lang you know, there is this deeper language in it and there is this this questing, as you say. And part of me wonders what this book would have been like if he had waited two more years and sort of yeah. thrown away some of the stories that Or felt ten more, more like, years. Or right, and throw away some of the stories that feel a little more like they were exercises to get to the deeper stories here. But I think one of the interesting questions that's being raised by this discussion, and I would be very curious to know what he thinks, is, you know, the question of can you write beautifully about a horrific and numbing thing? And it feels to me as though he was very nervous about writing beautifully about yeah. war. And I think that's a legitimate concern, but it also is one that leaves us lacking something, right? And as you're bringing up Tim O'Brien, I'm thinking one of the things about that book is that there's a lot of writerly beauty. And I don't mean kind of lyrical, evocative, highfalutin passages, but just almost the sentences and the way they work. And another book that's one of my favorite war books is Michael Harris' Dispatches, yes. <laughs> which is about the total mess of Vietnam, right? Just the total morass and mess and chaos. But it is just an extraordinary piece of writing. 
And it's very beautiful in its way. And I, I think that that is a, a thing one can do, but it does feel like something that doesn't happen here as much as, you know, my personal tastes would maybe have liked. But that said, I really loved some of these stories like the one that you just mentioned. I'm just going to read the quintessential chapter that illustrates what you both are talking about. This is in Bodies, which is a story that I like. It's a very ambivalent story. He comes back, tries to reconnect with the girl he really liked, but she doesn't see him as the same person anymore. She sees him as war guy now, so she can't really connect with him. And then he has a kind of ambivalent sexual encounter where he tries to locate the ambivalence about, you know, did I just rape this woman or did I not just rape this woman as the same sentiment that he feels about war. And he says, except what happened in Iraq was just what happened, nothing more. I don't think it made me any better than anyone else. It was months and months of awful. And the first weekend back, we got a 96 and Corporal G convinced me to go with him to Las Vegas. But then they don't go to Las Vegas. They stop at like a shitty town before Las Vegas. You know, it's that sense like of nothing happens, which is really, really hard to write about. Nothing happened, but it sucked. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you Mm -hmm. write that? And ambivalence ambivalence to me seems both a very signature response to this particular war, right? A war that everyone in it entered willingly, unlike, say, Vietnam or any past American war, but that nearly everyone in it didn't actually necessarily believe in the political argument behind. And so you have a bunch of people fighting a war that they are almost all naturally ambivalent about. And this is a book written very shortly after that experience. I mean, when I think about most of the great war books, I think of books written 20 or 25 years after that experience. And the close, it seems often to me that Kurt Vonnegut could not have written Slaughterhouse-Five the week after Dresden. And Tim O'Brien, when he wrote about Vietnam right after Vietnam, wrote way worse things about Vietnam than he wrote 20 years after. Is he trying to do something kind of millennial and unfinished? You know what I mean? Is that something? Exp- no, really. Like, is he trying to say <laughs> yeah. that the unfinishedness of it is intentional in some way? Like, I'm just think throwing so. out impressions, you know? I think it is resistant to climax. I mean, I do right. think that that's part of what's going on is sort of just a resistance to... What's funny is when you read the reviews of the book, I feel like the reviews, which often say some version of, you know, here's a book that tells us what it was really like to be in Iraq, are exactly what he didn't want to happen. It's exactly Mm. what he is Hmm. mocking and resisting in this book. In fact, the book does not tell you what it's like to be in Iraq. You know, for that, you have to read David Finkel's excellent thank you for your service about the vets coming back. I mean, there's a lot of been a lot of great nonfiction about the Iraq war. American Sniper maybe tells you, you know, gets you to feel what it's like to come back. This book is just an attitude and he wants to close the difference between what's happened here and what's happened there. And yet that's how it's being received. Like there's a heroic tone to the reviews and the accolades, which I really am curious what he what he thinks about. I think this is where the book gets the most interesting to me is where he really digs into the kind of granular details of contemporary technological culture. And as you guys were saying, the professionalization and particularly the bureaucratization. So one thing I thought was really interesting was there's a guy who hasn't been in battle talking to his friend who has been. And He's come home from Iraq and 
he's having trouble settling into life in, in America. And one of the things he does, and this was totally fascinating to think about, was watch the war on the internet all day long. Right. right. So he goes to YouTube and he watches battles and he watches and he says this thing at some point where he's like, it was just like playing Call of Duty. And I understand why so many soldiers like Call of Duty, right? Because there's one video he watches that's like a soldier has a cam on his helmet, right? And then he says to his friend, is this what they're kind of enjoying it and talking? And then he says to his friend, is this what war battle was like? And the guy's just like, no, and kind of clamps up. Like those moments I thought really started to get at something in a more productive way than that kind of flatter, you know, having sex with the girl and then being like, what did I do? Yeah. Those observational moments are were often really good. There's, it's actually very interesting that, I mean, we've sort of sidelong mentioned American Sniper here mm-hmm. and there in our conversation, but there's not unlike a scene in American Sniper where Bradley Cooper's character back from Iraq is like just sitting around watching like yeah. terrorist videos on his computer and on the TV and watching combat videos. And that sort of observation struck me as one of the best parts about American Sniper. And it struck me as the best parts about this book. And in fact, the fact that many of the stories I like the best in this were the ones that explored wartime experiences that are vastly different than the traditional combat experiences, whether it's that artillery man or whether it's the foreign service officer and money as a weapon system who's in a town trying to get little kids to play baseball in Iraq, or whether it's the chaplain that I loved so much. Those stories both, I loved them and they frustrated me because one of the reasons I liked them so much was because I was those were the stories where I was most unfamiliar with the world of the story itself. When I was more familiar with the world of a story, it felt less fresh. And that suggested to me that we are – I never felt like I was in the hands of like a particularly capable or expert storyteller. As you say, Megan, deep characterization is not what he's great at. Plot really is not necessarily what he's great at, yep. but he is an extremely good observer, and he's mm-hmm. very good at picking out and telling details. So the net result of this book to me was that I felt like I was in the hands of a potentially really good magazine journalist who instead chose to write a book of short stories. And I would be so happy to for someone to send Phil Clay and his very intelligent observational skills and his ability to pick out the best detail to illustrate something. I would like someone to send him somewhere where he could report a totally different kind of story from this, a story that maybe has nothing to do with war. Send him you know, to someplace where he can report on poverty or crime or I don't know what, but I feel like that and maybe I'm wrong, and maybe Phil Clay will develop it 20 years from now into one of our great fiction writers about war or about other things. But this book made me think that maybe his talents are something totally different. There were a couple stories here that really seemed quite powerful to me in ways that I thought, okay, you know, he is a fiction writer. And maybe if this book had kind of cooked for a little longer, and, and who knows how long it did cook, but maybe it maybe it did need to cook a little longer. I totally agree, obviously, about the characterization and plot. And I, the observations are really powerful. But then there are the stories like the Chaplin story where he did start to find a fictional form for what he was looking into. Yes, that's totally true. All right. So overall, what would you say, Hannah? Would you recommend, not recommend, recommend with reservations? Recommend rec- only for liberal pussies? <laughs> liberal pussy journals. I would recommend with reservations. Megan? I would definitely recommend. I mean, I think it gives us a picture in some ways that I haven't seen before. And I I think I would recommend with reservations or with, you know, lowered expectations maybe because I think that's when you'll find the most from it. And I would definitely read his next book. This is a book that made me wish I was just reading his next book 
Like, mm-hmm. despite mm-hmm. there being several stories that I legitimately love, like the long dry stretches made me think this guy's next book is potentially a keeper, but, yep. <laughs> but not this one. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys, for joining me to uh, talk about redeployment. I was really glad to have you here. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks. All right. A program note. Our next audiobook club selection is The Girl on the Train, the best-selling thriller by the British author Paula Hawkins. Check it out and join us for our next episode on March 6th. And if you're a Slate podcast listener, please help us out by taking a quick survey online to let us know which podcasts you listen to, how you listen to them, and which ones you love the best, i.e. ours, our our podcast. Ours is the one you love the best. Just go to slate.com slash surveys. It just takes a few minutes and it will really help us make sure that Slate podcasts give you everything you're hoping for and it will help us launch new ones aligned to your interests. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. And please, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes if you don't already. That helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Megan O'Rourke and Hannah Rosen, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.